You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Tonight, thank you so much for coming out in this chilly evening. Tonight is especially wonderful. We're really thrilled to be hosting Elizabeth Spires and David Yazzie. They're each going to read for a little while, then we'll have some Q&A from the table here, and then they're going to read some closing poems, and afterwards there will be a bit of time for you to buy their books. So I'm just going to begin by introducing David Yazzie. David Yezzi's most recent books of poems are Birds of the Air and Black Sea, both from Carnegie Mellon. His verse play, Schnauzer, is forthcoming from Exit Books. He is chair of the writing seminars at Johns Hopkins, and he edits the Hopkins Review. In a poem called Mirandi's Bottles, David Yezzi writes about how the painter uses images of wine bottles to suggest so much else. What sighs beneath the surface, even there, of the unillumined world where it comes clear. His own art also seeks to expose what sighs beneath the surface, particularly what is dark in people, what we have hidden, forgotten, or distracted ourselves from on the darkest part of the block. In a poem called The Long Coat, which feels like a novel compressed into 11 lines, The speaker imagines a woman walking away from him as young again buoyant before he returns to a sadder perspective, and I thought I saw you walking away. In a stop before starting, the speaker steps off a train to experience a hint of nature in its purest form before urban life sweeps him up again. I never saw the place though I remember, thinking this is Switzerland, and took a mind shot of the pines, breathing in the cold, as the porter whistled at us to reboard. Each poem has secret worlds inside it, which it opens to reveal. Like the foldings that produce the paper bird in the poem, The Crane, the secret interiors of the poems give them their richness. This unleaving makes of what's before something finer and finally more. What a thrill it will be to hear his gorgeously musical work tonight. Please help me to welcome David Yezzi. Thank you. Thanks so much um, for that le- really lovely introduction. That was very thoughtful and... Uh, uh, clearly uh, took a lot of time and patience. I appreciate that. You can pull it up. You're good, actually. You're Is totally on your Okay. I should have maybe done a little tech rehearsal beforehand, but this seems to be working out okay. So I'm going to read um, uh, two love poems in the time that I have. Um, One is very short, and uh, one is very long. Um, But I promise I'll stick to time here. Uh, The first poem 
you've heard a little bit of, um, but maybe I'll give it a bit, a bit more of a running start so we can kind of get a sense of the whole. It's called Crane, and it's about origami. Paper, creased, is with a touch made less by half, reduced as much again by a second fold. So the wish to press our designs can diminish what we hold. But by your hands' careful work, I understand how this unleaving makes of what's before something finer and finally more. Uh, I want to read a relatively new poem, um, which is something I, sort of, I like to do at readings. It feels a little without a net, you know. And it's also very useful, I find, in terms of writing the poem, to kind of test it on the voice, test it um, to get a kind of audience uh, sense of it. Is for me a big, um, very welcome part of the process. So this poem will probably take about 12 minutes to read. That'll take me to my time. But uh, And I admit that it may have its longer. So if any particularly occur to you, you can let me know during the Q&A. Uh, it's a dramatic monologue in the voice of uh, the composer Eric Satie, um, who uh, was a Parisian uh, in the early uh, 20th century um, avant-garde composer. In uh, 1893, he began the only love affair of his life with the painter Suzanne Valadon, who's an extraordinary painter. Um, she painted, among many things, uh, a beautiful portrait of Satie. And he became obsessed with her during their short time together. Uh, and when she left him, uh, he was devastated. So this is, uh, and Satie was a bit of a madman. He was a hoarder, um, for example. When he died, um, they found um, in his tiny apartment, like two pianos, one on top of the other. And then, uh, he had a hundred umbrellas that he had kind of collected. So this is called 100 Umbrellas. <clears throat> oh, and also, he, um, you know, he, didn't, he didn't have any money, so he had to kind of move out of town. Uh, and this is sort of, it starts off kind of, he's bemoaning the fact that he's sort of been kind of kicked out of Paris because of finances. 100 Umbrellas. After so long, I have finally arrived. Exactly where? Well, here. Yes, here for sure. A lampless street, an obscure neighborhood, outside the walls, an hour's walk from town. I gave up town. No. Oh, uh, sorry. I gave up town. Now what do I have left? A tiny dollar I've fed on for decades. This pang is now the full scope of my gift. But thankfully, that's nothing at all to you. I'm so glad you're here. You're good to come. I've been turned down before, yes, many times by women who could clearly use the money, artists' models mostly, like she was. That dress you're trying on should fit you well. 
It's stolen from the Ballet Russe, a get-up that Basque designed for Boris Gudinov. I took it last night from the costume shop. It's possible I had a bit to drink. Did I tell you that I'm writing ballets now? Me and Picasso. Yes, and Jean Cocteau, that imbecile. So earnest and effete. Pablo's more my taste. He's devious. And yet... His sets of cardboard cubists so well, striking in a nonsense sort of way. His kind of nonsense, though, makes too much sense. Perhaps you'll come one night. We'll go together. And please don't worry. With that screen between us, you can be discreet. It's Japanese. Do you admire the work? Indoors, it's cherry trees. Outside, it's snow. And freezing rain. Then... Finally, merely rain, rain, sleet, rain. Gray water threads the jet-black paving stones in rivulets around the egg-shaped cobbles, then back together and apart again before joining with the torrent in the gutters churning downhill like springtime in a valley. Have you been to the south? One day you will. When you're older... You'll love the Alps. You think I'm joking, but I never joke. I sometimes smile, though that's by accident. Occasionally, back when she was there, the one I mentioned, Suzanne Valadon, a smile would cross my face like a spooked bird for a second and then vanish, registered only by her surprise, a passing shade. The things I say must seem quite strange to you. But I am not a madman, nor is this a hoax. It's just the way I am. A little what? It's true, I only like to eat white foods. Eggs, sugar, shredded bones, and certain fish without their skins. Fat from dead animals. Chicken cooked in water. Moldy fruit, rice, turnips. Sausages in camphor, veal, salt, coconuts... White cheeses, cotton salad. I boil my wine and drink it mixed with fuchsia. I love to eat, though I never talk at mealtimes, lest I suffocate myself. I breathe with care, a little at a time. All that she knew. Sleet's ticking at the windows. Sleet and ice are not my elements. I prefer rain. It rains in Paris, in the key of D. You see this painting... I was younger then. My hair long and back, and I affected a stovepipe hat. I think that was the happiest I've ever been. Spring, 1893. You see how foolish she has made me look. Beaky, I called her. Bonjour, Beaky, bonjour. She painted it when we two lived together in separate flats, and I would play for her a song to say good morning through the wall. The rain has made a lake of dirty water. There's black, and then there's blacker than black. There's nothing mystical about what vexes me, but at night I play it over in my mind 800 times. But first, an hour of quiet. I'm boring you. Please, will you have a drink? I think I will, if you don't mind. Absinthe is just anise plus poison. Light through fog calls home the small boats from the storm-tossed sea. 
I know this place is not so tidy. I had to fire the maid. She made me itch. A very haughty person, very arrogant. I always felt her eyes. But you don't judge me, do you? No, my dear, you are an angel, heaven's purest creature. I'm not a slob, I just can't part with things, magazines, newspapers. I keep a record. Here's April 13, 1895, the last night that we slept with one another. We'd been to see a show at the Grand Palais. She jumped out the window when she left me. No one will think of me when I am gone. You're wondering at these umbrellas, my dear. I admit they look quite frightening at night. I find them on my trips into the city, sad creatures, wind-racked birds with broken pinions, lying in gutters or crashed onto the quay, or under porticos in the marais. A few still work. This one has cut bamboo. Its slender bones expand to lift its wings against the midday sun or cold spring rain, like the one we have tonight that won't let up. After, you'll take it as a souvenir. I miss the city, but way leads on to way. These wounded dinosaurs are my mementos, like a tune of eighteen bars ad infinitum, because extinction sounds like that, played over just the same each time forever. I walked to town today. I like to walk. And now I have a blister on my toe. I saw no one, and yet it felt like home, a ghost in purgatory, cleansed by fire, while here I am in hell. The markets of Montparnasse, the sculpted gardens, the people toing and froing on the stones, the tussle overflowing the cafes. Ah, such wildness. Here we have the rain, a drip, a drop, a hovering mist of grey. I worry that we'll meet around a corner. I see her dressed in black outside the church. I see her disappearing down an alley. I see her in a taxi going by, behind the high glass of an atelier, nude, posing for her lover, or she's painting in the sun of Montmartre in the afternoon, in that same square that she knew as a girl, growing up without a father in the streets. The umbrella is a devilish machine. Each one as if flown from the blind recess of history to die in a heap on the Pont Neuf. Or sometimes I steal them from cloakrooms when the staff are smoking cigarettes outside in the alley. I can't resist my lust for gorgeous things. Look, this one has a mallard's head, how fitting. A duck in a downpour, beads on its back, the streets tonight are filled with mercury. Here's to you. You see the fairy dancing in the flame in green chiffon, like one of Degas' dancers. Absinthe is a green fairy, so they say. She's cold and growing smaller every year. I hate her. I adore her. Her white skin is the latest inspiration of Degas. She often takes her clothes off for him now. When you are dressed and ready, you may behave as cruelly as you like. The crueler, the better. Though in truth, she wasn't cruel, not wantonly. She didn't mean to be uncaring towards me, though she never loved me. That much I know. And when she realized that it was so, she never came again. 
She left a shelf of things, a perfume, a perfume, a brooch, a snake with ruby eyes, a gift, no doubt, this portrait of me, and this satin dress. I confess, it is no costume. It was hers, the one you are wearing now. Come, let me see you. One minute while I take away the screen. <laughs> you worthless imbecile, she left no dress. No, that's not it. I am not mad. She's here, so beautiful. Perhaps you'll come again tomorrow night, or stay a while, at least until it stops, the rain. Shh, listen, like a song. You'll stay. Rain. Rain. Thank you. for children, including The Mouse of Amherst and I Heard God Talking to Me, William Edmondson and His Stone Carvings. Her poems have appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Poetry, American Poetry Review, and other magazines and anthologies. She lives in Baltimore and is a professor at Goucher, where she co-directs the Kratt Center for Creative Writing. Elizabeth Spires writes a poetry that seems to shine not simply because of its spare, pared-down, musical, and exact language, but also because it has such a pure mission to reveal the truth that every line practically radiates light. What the poems aim to reveal is the mystical reality that lies on the other side of language and our individual lives, which weaves us all into joyful cycles of being and love. As she describes it in one poem, this truth is the word inhabited but unspoken, like a bell unrung. Elsewhere, it's the moment when each of us steps out of the frame in which our story has been written. At that moment, she wonders of herself with a lovely rhyme, then will I know the story in its entirety, know all that I need to know, the now that is snow. Though fascinated with the universal and eternal, the poems also treasure the particular and passing. From the white peacock whose tail spreads with a sound like sibilant wind, to the inchworm who measures and seems to know her. Of the cicadas that visit Baltimore at 17-year intervals, she writes, they left gold carapaces behind, they left a silence in the mind that deepens as the years go on. Like the gold cases of the cicadas, Elizabeth Spire's radiant poems inscribe our minds with silence. Please help me to welcome Elizabeth Spires. Thank you, Shane. 
friends becoming one. He also, um, one of some of his other hats are poetry editors, so he's been very kind to me in that regard as well. Thank you. Uh, can, I, can I make it go down just a little? Yeah. Um, just a extra two. You can tilt it down. Do you know how to do that? I'm sorry. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you. That's good. I'm going to read some short, short poems um, that don't have um, anything terrifically long. And except for the first poem, it, I'm reading from A Memory of the Future, which is my new book. But this is a poem, uh, I, sometimes I start with something new just because it seems fresh. And this is a poem where technology creeps in. I have found that anymore I Google what I need to know more and more. And I started to think about uh, what kind of questions could you ask Google that Google couldn't answer, okay? And so this is just a very short poem comprised completely of questions. Questions for Google. What does it mean and why does it matter? How do I get from here to there? Where is the line that cannot be crossed? Why is the first time the best? Who will be coming and when will they get here? How long will it last before it is over? Who has the right and why do they have it? Who is the most important one? What did it mean and why did it matter? If all is lost, how will I find it? If not now, then when? Are you real? Do you even exist? <laughs> this book, um, it's not all the poems I wrote the past 10 years. It's maybe half of them. Um, a lot of them didn't suit me. Uh, and. Uh, I became more interested in Zen in the 10 years that this book was being written. Uh, And in the middle of those 10 years, I was on a sabbatical in New York and was looking at um, Japanese artist books at the New York Public Library. So um, some of these poems are Zen-inspired, and the cover of the book is from a Japanese artist book. Um, And I'm going to start with a dream poem. The Shrine. I was taken underground down many flights of stairs to a room inside the earth lit by a sourceless light where on a rough-hewn pedestal carved from an ancient tree a face stared out at me, stared past me into time. Someone had made the shrine a woman, I thought, like me, her gray hair wild, unkept, as she worked the wood with gold to 
to make a precious overlay. The shrine a place to kneel and pray for continuance. Like a gift, another morning came, cool and gray, bringing the chance of rain, rain that would wash the earth clean of the summer's dust. But I cannot forget the shrine, the face, the woman working wonders, buried so deep beneath me in a room in the center of the earth. Uh, this is a poem that came out of teaching. Um, I've done a lot of teaching in my life, but not very many poems have sprung out of the classroom. Uh, in a spring workshop, I always ask them to read, uh, my students to read a book I like a lot called The Zen of Creativity by John Dale Laurie. And so the poems referring to this book we're reading about Zen, and that's the book. And I always mention it because I want other people to run out and get the book because I like it so much. <clears throat> it's called Zen Sonnet. And I kind of like the idea of this warring impulse. I mean, Zen is not considered to be formal and structure and structured, and sonnets are at least 14 lines. I'm using the word sonnet loosely. So I thought I'd put that together, Zen sonnet. <clears throat> it was April, and we were reading the book about Zen. You were writing your Zen poems. And we were talking about the moment we were in. And I was thinking thoughts that were not Zen, how I know too much, too little to teach you. And then I stepped back from each thought and watched it disappear, a horse without a rider, over a sharp-edged horizon. Spring was a pale shade of yellow, a green that kept deepening. There was desire. And there was a sense of unfolding, and I thought how we can do anything. There is no need for an excess of feeling. We can walk through the door that was made for entering and exiting, abandoning the poems that were never ours, though we wrote them, to the one who walks into this room when we are gone. So let us go out into the world and wander a little. Beggars with empty bowls and straw hats, grass sandals. <clears throat> they drive through childhood in their little cars. Loving them, we love nothing, no one, if not change. As they drive through childhood in their little cars, steering so seriously into the future, while we follow a few steps behind, tripping through days and weeks and years, watching as they suddenly speed up without a glance backward, without waving goodbye. Not to grow older, not to grow up. Once safe in my kingdom of cocoa, I wished for that, but years pushed me roughly out the door. 
I drove away in my little silver car, gripping the wheel too tightly, steering so seriously into the future, without a glance backward, without saying goodbye. Older now, we know, if we know nothing else, that we love them as they were and are, though what they are keeps changing. We can't keep up. How seriously they pedal their little cars into a future we won't be part of. In a moment, a turn ahead will take them out of sight as we follow, follow for dear life, practicing our goodbyes. <clears throat> Travels on, 
something to hold and keep holding. As we hold on to ones who have gone on, like lighthouses no longer there, their light doesn't die, no, never, keeps traveling on. As we stumble and shine and remember looking up. And I'll um, read two more poems before we do some questions, and then we'll come back and each read a poem. Um, I am a person who likes riddles very much, um, and I've written about 75 riddles, but most of them have gone into two children's books. But there are two riddles in this book. Um, uh, I put the answers in the back, so if you want to know the answer, you can always buy the book. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so this is, this is one of the riddles. <clears throat> you are the bright one, my dearest possession. Speechlessly, you offer up your pictures. Joy, sorrow, terror, too. You are both one and many, a hoard, a chest of jewels, some life-giving, some taking the light, until I lose myself in darkest night. Oh, who will perish first? Me? You? Though some do, I pray never to outlive you. Somebody did guess the answer to that riddle hearing it about peaking, so I was <clears throat> And this is the title poem of the book. Um, I'm going to go back to, I mentioned The Zen of Creativity by John Dado Laurie. Um, in that book, he um, made this comment, he said, I'm quoting, one of the beautiful aspects of Asian poetry is the vagueness of its languages. And that just hit me like a you know, lightning bolt because as a teacher and as a person who writes poetry and as a person who's been in a poetry workshop, you're always it's hammered into you to be very, very specific when you write and not to be vague. And I really like this idea of a poem that was deliberately vague. Um, uh, so this poem, um, in a sense, is vague. Um, I mean, it, you can't just write a vague poem. You have to figure out, it, to be, it has to be about something. So, I mean, the poem has to do with loss of memory, this place of unremembering. <clears throat> a memory of the future. I will say tree, not pine tree. I will say flower, not forsythia. I will see birds, many birds, flying in four directions. Then rock and cloud will be lost, spring will be lost, and most terribly, your name will be lost. I will revel in a world no longer particular, a world made vague as if by fog, but not fog. Vaguely aware 
I will wander at will. I will wade deeper into wide water. You'll see me there, out by the horizon, an old gray thing who finally knows gray is the most beautiful color. Thank you. to your riddle. Okay, you did you didn't pee, right? No, I'm getting them teeth. A red wheelbarrow. <laughs> no. <laughs> or maybe a white chicken. What? No, I'm sorry, red wheelbarrow, and I said a white chicken. A <laughs> couple of questions. Uh, have any of your editors, uh, well, have they, any of your publishers or editors suggested editing? And my second question uh, what do you think of the poetry of, of John Ashbery? Do you mean when you're getting a poem accepted, do I get much feedback about ways I should change it? Like a, a prose editor, definitely. I know they yeah. come up with stuff, but... I actually have gotten very little in the way mm. of, uh, of suggestions for editing, but I think... I want you to tell me what you think because you've been on both ends of the, you know, the editor and the poet. Uh, I think that there's a kind of respect for the poem, usually. So, I mean, I haven't gotten a lot of suggestions for editing. Well, I mean, you heard it. I, you know, Beth's poems don't need editing. You know, that's the... <laughs> I, um, I have worked as an editor. I currently edit the Hopkins Review here in town, and um, I do edit poems. I mean, I... I send them back to people and I say this is great, but uh, this is this passage is not working, or it's you know for whatever reason, maybe take another look at it. And um, um, actually, I can think of a couple of poems. I'm sort of proud that I you know that their problems came really right at the end, and I was like, you got it. This isn't it's not it's not paying off. You got to go back and look at something, and they'll you know. And so those those changes do happen in the editing, um, and um, but not a lot of editors take the time to do that. Um, so I don't think I get a lot of suggestions from editors. It's sort of all or nothing. It's like, I like it, I'll take it, or I got some hesitations, I'm going to pass. Um, I think my poems could use some editing, but I, I, it's not a lot of editors have time enough for that. I, I once had to edit a, a special issue of a magazine, and I, I unfortunately did try to be an editor, and I don't think anybody really liked it. <laughs> I'm very resistant to my. They don't like it, but they can I always thought, put it back. Why aren't they grateful that I put all this time right. into writing in this note about some things that might make it better? But I I'm not a John Ashbery. I don't know as I know many of his poems, but not well, and so I don't know that I want to have an opinion because I haven't spent the kind of time with Ashbery's poems. It's, 
poems that I have with some other poets that I love a lot. I you spent very much time. I think John Ashbery. Yeah. Um, he's um, he's a consummate musician, and he um, maybe better than any other poet I can think of. Certainly, recent poet is able to hold intelligibility at just arm's length. It's not too far. He sort of lets it in sometimes, and then he kind of fends it off again. But he has it exactly where he wants it, and there's there's sort of an interesting tension and dynamic in exactly where he holds, um, um, you know, sense. Uh, and, and he has a brilliant ear. And, he's, and nobody can do that. He's the only one who can do that. Can and so he's interesting. The the yeah, it was just kind of like, yeah, right. Um, so, but I, you know, but I don't go to read John Ashbery for the same pleasures that I read, um, you know, other poets. I get different things from, from them than I get from him. Thank you. Very good presentations. Um, this, uh, interesting question. This past weekend we had the annual Alien Convention at the Baltimore Convention Center. So my question is, there's always people looking for something new. Uh, coming from what's in, what's in outer space or UFOs or do they exist, whatever. So if you were writing a poem or poems about it, what approach would you use? Not knowing, of course, we don't know what uh, what could what could materialize. Well, there's a whole school of poetry devoted to this, the Martian school of poetry. Um, I recommend it. Craig Rain, uh, Martian sends a postcard home. Yeah. It's like the best known poem yeah. by that school. Yeah. Right. So it's it's already been done. <laughs> <laughs> David, would it be stupid to ask you about Robert Browning? Uh, no, it would not. Though I, um, I feel like I should love Browning more than I do, considering how much I love writing dramatic monologues. But it's weird. You know, influence is very weird. It's not... Um, I think it's not quantity, it's quality. Um, and I think that My Last Duchess is just one of those perfect poems that, you know, I've always admired. And so I would not discount that as being something that's kind of, that percolates when I think about writing dramatic monologues. Um, yeah, but I just, I don't, you know, having worked a little bit as an actor, there's a lot of, I mean, I, 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 I enjoy the opportunity to ham it up, you know, so I, I try and, whenever I can make an occasion for that. Um, and sometimes, you know, there's a little bit of Shakespeare, a little bit of Frost, a little bit of all those guys that I love. Um, but um, but Browning, Yeats, I mean, that's, they're used to draw, you know, drama used to be such a big part of poetry. It's sort of not in the same way anymore. Um, I mean, Yeats thought the drama was the height of poetry, that that's really where it was at, you know, that that was the, that was where the rubber met the road. But, um, yeah. still do it. Who's that? The Russians still do it. Yeah, they sure do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Maybe they'll come back. I mean, for more than a few poems. Maybe. Though it's tough. I mean, I, you know, now in the, if you look in the, um, uh, what is it, the Princeton Encyclopedia of Poetry and Poetics, you look up lyric poetry, and it, I kid you not, it, it says uh, essentially all poems now are lyric poems. And 
uh, and it's true. I mean, you know, that's the you know that the earlier editions of the, of the Princeton didn't say that, but now we've come to a point where sort of all poems are lyric poems, and it's weird if you're doing something slightly that's not. <clears throat> but there's an opportunity though. You know. Hey, good to see you. Huh? Good comments on Ashbury too. Oh, um, and, uh, yeah, I know you like Ashbury. <laughs> I do. Um, I um, I, many of us, of course, wait for your poems, and it's exciting that there's a new book out. So I guess I was wondering, uh, as someone that you know loves Robin Hitchcock and likes to buy his albums filled with unreleased material, I'm wondering whether your unreleased material is just not coming together in a way that connects it for a book, or whether some of it was unfinished, or whether there is kind of a nucleus of a book that may come out a little sooner. Um, well, can I be roundabout? Yeah, please. I, when I can't get a poem finished, I have a green chair in my study, it's up off the floor, and I, I just put the drafts there, so like it's just stacked underneath the green chair. And sometimes I take the drafts out, and sometimes something happens, but a lot of times it doesn't, and then I put it back under the green chair. And that there's a poem there about old poems under the chair in the book. But, um, because one day when I was riffling through those drafts, I saw a tiny little bug, and I couldn't figure out what, how it could live there. Yes. I think there should be sort of a mystery novel though called The Green Chair where things sort of disappear and kind of mysterious creatures. I was avoiding kind of just the heart of that. That was well put. I liked that expression that they didn't suit you. I thought, I, yeah, I know what you mean. Well, they weren't. They weren't like word perfect. They were. They would have places that I knew. I either either the phrasing wasn't right, or I knew I needed there to be more. Maybe like if you held up a piece of Swiss cheese or something, and there were holes in it, and uh, and then I would struggle to find what went there and what the phrasing should be and if I can't find it then I don't know you know I, I always know I don't mean I'm right I just know if it feels right to me if, if it feels like it all clipped into place you have to use your own judgment unless you're part of a writer's group which I'm not but you know even if you are part of a writer's group you still have to use your own judgment you know finally so I don't know, when you are having trouble with a poem, is there a way to describe the trouble? The, you know, the, the, it's just. It just gets the smell check, you know? It's, it's like, no, thumbs up or thumbs down. It goes in that folder where right? you know, they no longer emerge, they don't emerge from again. Under the green chair. Under the green chair. <laughs> Yeah. Um, do you have, did you have to do a lot of research about his life, or or did you just have to take a few a lot a few hints about about him to create uh, the monologue? It's a really, it's a really good question because it's uh, the satie. I've done two monologues of what I imagine maybe three, possibly four, 
that are in the voice of historical characters. And it's the first time I've ever done that. Before, they've just been sort of imagined characters or you know, people I know or based on me or whatever. And so I wasn't bound by any you know, historical record. Um, but uh, different things, I, uh, one character, there was an, a little art exhibition with you know, kind of wall text and stuff that I bumped into. And I was like, oh, I knew enough then about that person after having read that, that I basically could kind of do what I needed to do with a little bit more research. And then I read this great chapter in, I uh, highly recommend Roger Shattuck's book, The Banquet Years. Um, it's extremely brilliant book, and there's a chapter on sati, which um, actually I probably need to uh, footnote, uh, because I took quite a lot from it. But um, So for that, I did need to do a little bit of research. Yeah. Um, thank you. Yeah. Um, what living poet do you just love? You Present company, except recommend for us. Um, well, I would have to say more than one. I mean, Go ahead. oh, okay. Uh, you can have three. No. <laughs> I, I, um, some of the, some of the poets I really care about are. Poets I've been reading for a long time, and kind of were in the same generation, you know. So uh, there's a poet named Phyllis Lovin. I love her work, mm. and her um, she had a poem completely in questions. They weren't the same kind of questions as my poem, my Google poem, but I was so fascinated with the idea of doing that, you know. So sometimes you find a poet who you've been reading for a long time, and their idea gives you your own idea for, you know, different kind of take on some project, poetic project. So I like her work a lot, and um, uh, a poet that, a book came out recently that I liked a lot is called The Analyst by Molly Peacock. Oh, yes, yeah, sure, sure. It's a really yeah, interesting amazing. book. And, um, Particularly when you add up how much she spent on therapy over the course of her life. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, decades of, of, you know, three times a week. I thought, oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a couple dozen people because some of the people that, um, you know, I've loved are gone now. Um, a Maryland poet, Josephine Jacobson. Yeah, she's wonderful. And uh, ARMs. It's gone, and others. So. And Beth is Josephine's editor, and did an edition of her poems, which is available and amazing. She's terrific. I um, guess what I'm realizing is just how how good some people are, and not really that many people know it. Well, I mean, you know, there's actually Baltimore's sort of a mixed bag. There's so many talented poets in Baltimore, but they're but the the scene doesn't quite gel in the way that it would. I mean, you're a poet. I know you from online. And uh, Joseph Harrison is an extraordinary poet. And Jane Satterfield is a brilliant poet. And Ned Balbo is a first-rate poet. I mean, these are, these are major poets right here. Um, we should all be getting together over beers on a weekly or monthly <laughs> basis and, and sharing poems. So, I mean, there's a lot going on um, right here that I would recommend. Um, if you don't, If you haven't read... You know, Joe Harrison or Ned Balbo or Jane Satterfield, I, I highly recommend that you do. They're among the best poets writing today. I've published them and admired them for years. Not that that's a testament, but 
Um, they're the real deal, and they're right here in Baltimore. So. Um, well, that could be a good note to end. Did anyone want to? Um, yeah, we we can move to closing poems if you like. Oh, right. That was a great Q and A session. Thank you, everyone. Sure. Um, no, thank you. Yeah. So um, each of the poets is just going to read, I think, one more. Sure. Poem. Yeah, um. Or you can read right from the table if you like. Oh, okay. yeah, I mean, unless you'd rather. No, it's good. Yeah. Uh, this poem? Uh, I, I'll just read a poem that um, a friend of mine said that they liked recently, so I'd like to read it because that was a nice thing for them to say. Um, it's uh, about playing tennis with my daughter and. Um, you know, when you play games with your kids, there's always that question of, you know, do you let them win, and is that good for them, or is that bad for them? I, I, now she, she would just beat me, so it's no longer a question, but this was, a, this was years ago. Uh, it's called Let. Across the net, she wilts and falls behind, so I let a few balls slide by in the midgy air and drawn sky of late summer. Is this letting her win a Judas kiss, the warm sin of fooling too far a daughter who, slow to laughter, stakes all in all on a game? She's tall. I call her name to snap her back from the place she goes, blurring the odds, ace, game, set. Her stride returns as I abet her. She learns no lesson, nor do I hint at helping. After we sprint on the road home, our run hung with gold silk, spun by spiders in patchy pines, the threads glint in sidewise lines, cinches borne by the air, so loosely worn, they're hardly there. That's, that's one of my favorites. Oh. Uh, okay, this is a little longer. No, it's just two pages. It's not like ten pages. Uh, when I turned in A Memory of the Future, I, was dedicated, I dedicated it to a professor I had at Vassar who became a lifelong friend. And then right after I turned the manuscript in, I mean, meeting a deadline, I wrote an actual poem that was for him. Um, so that's what I'm going to read because I, I kind of wish it was in the book, but, it, well, sooner or later it will be in a book if there's another book. Uh, and it takes place, if you've ever been to Poughkeepsie, maybe not a place you've ever been, um, they have a mile-long walkway across the Hudson River. It used to be a double railroad track, and they turned it into a park. So that's really, it's, it's kind of an incredible experience to have a mile, of, you know, the Hudson's so wide, and so this, this starts out there. <clears throat> Remembering Poughkeepsie for William Gifford. <clears throat> the river, always the same, never the same. Poughkeepsie, a place north of where I am. To remember you is to remember Poughkeepsie. 
To remember Poughkeepsie is to remember the river. I am down the river now, and you are a memory I carry everywhere, both light and heavy, the way memories are. Light and heavy, that day in December, bitterly cold, the river shining, gray. We were the only ones out that day, two tiny figures bundled against the cold, crossing the Hudson on the walkway. Halfway to the other side, you stopped, had to turn back, but I went on, nothing would stop me. Tapped the far shore quickly, came back to where you waited, cold, ready to call it a day. There used to be words for what I want to say. You knew me when there were words. Words there for the taking, like stones along the river, there, there, and there, waiting to be picked up and arranged into a speaking coherence. Now I search and search for the right ones, choosing one, then another, turning them over in my hands, because words are all I have, but words are not enough. Light and heavy, you, a memory now. But to exist in memory, is to exist somewhere. To exist somewhere is to be carried. As a father carries a daughter who, from the first day, grows heavier and heavier. You carried me through years. You were there in the background, watching as I went off and made my way. Now, as a daughter carries a father, I carry you. You are light in my arms and growing lighter. Substantial, insubstantial, you are carried and remembered. You waited to cross the river. I wasn't there. It was summer, August. You crossed alone. But it wasn't the same river. It never is. A day will come. A day when days will fall away. The heaviness, the pain and loss. You and I, on the same side of the river, but not this side, not bitterly cold, no. Always the same, never the same. We will meet on the other side. <clears throat> Thank you. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.